It's the Forage Connection, grazing, growing, and feed with your hosts, Ben and Sarah. Joining us today is Rebecca Kern-Lunberry. Rebecca is a feed testing product manager and strategist with Ward Laboratories. Um, They're based out of Kearney, Nebraska, and do a lot of work with producers getting feed tests in, a lot of forage testing. Rebecca, you've worked with us at the University of Nebraska on a number of different projects, and we're really excited to have you on today. Um, Just to talk a little bit, we're in the midst of winter, finally showed up here in the plains um, Mm. in full force, and we've got producers that are dipping into hay stores, um, you know, having to pull cattle off of you know, some grazing resources that they might've been out a little bit longer than normal on and are at that point of the year where it's really going to be beneficial to know what they have to use. So uh, we're going to try to dive into that topic a little bit today and and talk about how we can, um, you know, best go about testing our feed resources and, and use that information to the benefit of our herd when we go about feeding it. So really excited to have you on today. Thanks, Ben. Thank you for having me. So before we get too far into the details here, Rebecca, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your role at Ward Labs? Yeah, definitely. So uh, about myself, so how I kind of ended up here in Kearney, Nebraska, I went to the University of Wyoming and studied animal science and was your classic like pre-vet. I want to work with you know puppies and kitties and kind of learned a little bit more about the beef industry. I had interned at a dairy farm in Minnesota before going off to school. Um, And that kind of got me headed that, you know, I really want to be involved in agriculture and the people around agriculture. And the more I learned about being a vet, the more I learned it wasn't really for me. But being in the lab absolutely was. I did an internship after um, undergrad at the U.S. Meat Animal Research Center and Clay Center, which then turned into a collaborative product project for my master's degree, where I studied gene expression in beef cow feed efficiency, um, steers, excuse me, not cows. And um, from there... I worked as a technician for a little bit at US Mark, and then I moved over to Ward Laboratories to be a consultant and am currently a professional animal scientist and the president of the NIRS Forage and Feed Testing Consortium. I'd say you've got some experience, so we're gonna go ahead and say you're qualified for this esteemed podcast. (laughs) 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 So, Rebecca, it sounds like you really uh, enjoy what you do working in the lab and you're pretty involved in the industry. So that was one of the reasons that we brought you on today. We thought you'd be a great resource. I know we've met in the past at previous meetings and it's been fun to listen to you. So as we kind of dive in here today, we thought we'd start with the topic of sampling. Uh, Before we talk about any analysis or what to do when you get your analysis back, you want to make sure you take the right sample. So why is proper sampling important when it comes to forage analysis? Yep, exactly, Sarah. You always um, need to start with a good sample. And one of the big sayings in a lot of labs, no matter what kind of testing you're doing, as you know, Ward Lab started as a soil testing lab and one of 
Nick Ward, our president's favorite sayings is garbage in, garbage out. So you need to start with a good representative sample. And it's especially key in forages because forages are variable. They consist of leaves and stems and maybe there's buds depending, you know, what kind of um, forage we're talking about. They might be mixed species forages, which just adds on to more of those variable aspects, the amount of weed content, the weather, the fertilizing protocol, when that hay was cut, if it was ensiled, what moisture was ensiled at. There's just so many different variables. And so in order to get a good idea of what your entire pile is on average, which is what you want to do for your animal diet, um, you really need to make sure that you're getting a good proper sample that's representative of that haystack, silage pile, grazing field, whichever, whatever kind of forage you're testing. You want the bag that goes into the lab to represent that um, because there's so much variability that if you just go in and do one or two hay cores and call it a day, um, you're not going to get that representation that you need because you might be over or under representing different aspects of that forage. As we kind of talk about this, there's you mentioned there's a number of different forages that producers might come into contact with and those sampling techniques are going to be a little bit different depending on what we're trying to send into the lab. So maybe we can kind of take it a little bit at a time and, and focus on one forage type at a time and go through it here. And if we miss any, Sarah and Rebecca, let me know if we're, <laughs> we've left one out. But um, mm-hmm. the first one on my list was, you know, hay, whether that's grass hay, mm-hmm. um, alfalfa hay, you know, as long as it's dried, I guess, does it matter when we're talking about it from a sample standpoint, if it's in a bale or if it's loose, if it's in a stack, maybe that's the first question we can answer there. Does, does that matter? Or if it's in the windrow. Yep, absolutely. So that does matter. So windrow, haystacks, those are difficult to sample. We don't really have a well-defined way to sample them. The best thing we can say is make sure you're taking samples from different areas of the stack or different locations in the windrow. Um, Where that becomes a challenge is with windrow is typically going to be a hand grab sample. So you're going to be losing leafy material through your fingers. Um, And so that's really, you're typically going to see a lower protein value if you're sampling at your windrow stage versus in your bale because you've lost some of that protein from the leaf um, and then you're going to see increased fibers which is going to underestimate the amount of energy that's available so we really uh, would recommend waiting to sample to get a good representative sample till you're in the bale and then making sure you're sampling that properly with with hay the first thing you need to do is define your lot and a lot of hay is going to be a single cutting from a single field cut at this a specific time of the day um, with a specific variety so you don't want to be mixing fields or mixing the timing that it was cut at or mixing you know if you had to stop for a day or something for whatever reason um, and then it needs to be less than 200 tons if it's more than that you need to split it into two like an A and a B or something like that, um, north or south of the field, something. Um, and then you want to take 20 hay cores. And you mentioned round bales versus square bales. And so that's kind of difficult to explain on a podcast of where to exactly take your cores. You need to take 20 for each lot. 
um, but those cores need to go in about 12 inches into the bale and the location on a rounded bale, you want it on the rounded side so that you're going through different layers of hay. Um, so hopefully that kind of makes sense. And then on your squares, you just want to make sure you're going through the layers again. So typically on those square bales, you're going into the shorter side, but through to the longer side. Into the butt end, as they would say. And you know, one thing, Rebecca, that um, at least around here I've seen is people have all sorts of different types of probes. So if you don't have a hay probe, a lot of times, um, I know in South Dakota, you can check them out at the extension offices, and that may be true in Nebraska and other neighboring states as well. Um, or a lot of um, feed animal supply stores have a nutritionist, and sometimes they'll offer that service if you're already a customer too, to take that sample for you. Absolutely. The question did come up about what's the best specs basically for a hay probe and the producers I work with are a lot of beef producers and small ruminant producers and with them it's kind of you know always a progression right so the dairymen they know and they they want specific specs on their hay probes because they want the best possible result and with the beef guys and the small ruminant guys just getting them to sample to start and then to not do a hand grab. And so like I was working with a small ruminant producer in California and he was very far away from an extension office. Um, he didn't have good resources from his vet. And so what he ended up doing actually was just cutting off an old golf club that he had that he was able to pound in. And so some things better than nothing. A hay probe is better than no hay probe. And of course there's different aspects of hay probes that you prefer over others but for our country for where we're at with our producers that is um that's what i recommend is just whatever you can find ward labs also has some that you can borrow but i always tell people like you said start with your vet extension nutritionist they're typically going to have it i guess to summarize that we're, we're trying to get as many layers in that sample as possible for that probe to go through uh basically to even out the variation. If, if we just went into one layer, we might hit a weedy patch or we might hit a, a wet spot in the field or something, and that might really throw off our sample. So by getting more layers going in that rounded side or the, the short side of a square bale, it just helps smooth out that variation and, and give us a better representative sample that we can actually um, trust the results on and then, and then go ahead and use. Yep, absolutely. Yes. Yep. So once we've probed our hay, let's say we're a, a dairy producer, we've got a pretty big heap of silage out there to take care of. So for anybody that is raising silage, uh, once it's fermented, usually you want to do some testing to know what you have there. Uh, where should we begin uh, thinking about that? What type of methods do you suggest? Silage is tricky. So if it's in a bunk, obviously you can't really access very different, very many different areas of it. I honestly recommend to go ahead and um, sample it when it's being green chopped off the truck and just take um, a few, mix them in like a clean five gallon bucket and send that to the lab. 
Um, that's maybe not completely industry standard, um, especially not for dairies. Um, most dairies, I'd say they're kind of sampling as they're going into it. Um, I think getting a sample while you're chopping is going to give you your best um, average representation. But a lot of the dairies and then like the beef feedlots, they're going to be sampling that as it comes off the face um, from different areas. And then that gets into silage safety and always just, you know, being safe when you are working around a silage pile. And then if you are working with a bag, some producers will go ahead and use a hay probe and just probe into that bag. But just know that when you do that, you're always introducing the risk of mold because you're puncturing the barrier that's keeping oxygen out. Um, so if you have fully ensiled you're, and you're at a good pH, then it's nice and acidic environment. You're, you don't have much to worry about. But if you're sampling too early and it hasn't fermented and it's not well preserved, then that's where you're going to start to see mold spots as you start working through that pile because of where you sampled. So so silage is kind of less well-defined and uh, more of a difficult thing. But at the same time, if you're doing a good job with the chopper and packing and all of that stuff and being consistent across the field, it's a little bit less variable, I'd say, than your hay that you're putting up from year to year. Would that be a situation where you know, if we're taking off a certain amount, you know, from that face as we're feeding out um, and, you know, we're pulling that away and, and throwing it into the um, mixer or making a secondary pile or to load up, I guess, do we need a sample right off the face? Or if we are removing that, just, you know, stopping the, the loader when we do that, running out and grabbing a, a couple of samples. And like you said, you know, grab some, throw it into a five gallon bucket, mix it up really good you know, a couple of different times, is that representative enough, I guess, or do we need to really be doing it from the face? I think either of those would work. I think that doing it probably from what's already been pulled off the face is going to be safer and we don't want to, you know, have any issues um, just pulling a silage sample, right? When you're like pulling a sample, never a hand grab. So always use like a cup or a tool or something like that so that you're not losing those fine particles because that's always going to underestimate. Okay. And if, if someone's interested, um, if you're a producer who has employees, the Bolson Silage Safety Foundation is a really great resource online um, and they have handbooks and things you can get a hold of. Um, especially if you have a lot of employees and they offer materials in Spanish and English both. But yeah, I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned that because that is a really good resource. Absolutely. Yes. So one more thing I might throw in there. Um, I know on some of our publications from the university, um, they talk about the quartering method mm -hmm. and that's just, I guess for those that aren't familiar with it, it's a way to take a large pile narrow it down to the amount because you only need when we're submitting a, a sample into the lab what like a, a quart size bag is that yeah that's all we need a quart size bag um, and we really don't want much more than that because then that causes us to have to split things and try to you know make sure that we're representing what was sent submitted to us which we always do um but it's better if that's kind of done on your end. You don't want us showing up with a trash bag full of, of silage. Or... <laughs> no, but it does happen and we do handle it. So it's not something that we'll ever 
scoff at or turn you away. So, but if we can help you out, um, you know, Mm -hmm. it's definitely worth doing and maybe no, (laughs) unfortunately not. That would be great if you could just jump the line because your sample's ready to go in the oven or, you know, whatnot, but, um, everything gets batched. So it doesn't matter as long as if it came in on that day, it's running with everything on that day. And actually silages usually are what's taking forever in the ovens. Um, so sometimes silages actually are kind of a hold up on some stuff. So, um, just cause they take longer to dry. Just with the moisture content. Mm-hmm. So I guess when we're talking, if you do hear that term, the quartering method, you know, that's taking that pile, splitting it into quarters, taking a subsection. It, I, you know, it's a, it's a nice way to do it, to get a representative sample. If I've got my five gallon bucket and I'm taking several subsamples, like you recommended with a cup to, you know, mm-hmm make sure that I'm getting everything in there, mix that up really good and take a few scoops out of the cup to fill up my bag. Do I need to take the time? I I know technically we should do the quartering method. Yeah. But I would recommend the quartering method. I would just use the bucket as a good way to collect your sub samples because you're going to collect more than you submit, like you said, uh, and then dump it out on a big piece of newspaper, something like that. Uh, we use butcher paper at the lab. Um, and actually once, once you kind of get it down, it's pretty easy and it goes Mm. pretty fast. So. And so the, for those that aren't familiar, we, we dump it out, we split it into force, um, get rid of kind of take the two corner pieces, get rid of the rest, mix it again. Yep. Mix it. Use the corners of your paper to roll, to kind of pull it and turn it until it starts to form a cone shape. Um, And that's why it's a cone and quarter method. So once it gets that cone shape, then quarter it and uh, basically do that until you can um, get just a quart size of buck bag. And then I always recommend whether it's a hay sample. I mean, hay samples, we typically don't recommend splitting, but if you can keep a subset, that always is nice in case you ever have any questions and you don't have to go redo the whole thing. Anything else on silage? So I guess the only other thing I'd say, you know, we talked about variability being the reason why we're sampling. So with corn silage, uh, remember it's very variable and it's almost more like a mixed feed. Um, So it's going to be something that you are going to have to try to do a very good job of getting that representative sample of the amount of corn kernels and um, all of that kind of stuff. And then with with that, I know we're not talking test packages yet, but I always recommend to run pH. I'm still kind of convincing some people. Most people don't run it until they have a problem. Um, But that's a really good way to know if your ensiling went well and to be able to make adjustments for next year if it didn't. That makes a lot of sense. And I think, yeah, we'll definitely dive further into analysis here. So before um, someone gets those samples to you, they've got to get them ready and ship them most likely unless they're real close to the ward location. So what are some good ways, uh, methods that you would like to see people ship their forage samples, whether it's hot out, cold out, somewhere in between? Mm -hmm. So this answer kind of surprises people and um, our lab may be different than other labs in this aspect too, but dried hay and silage, they both should be pretty well cured to where 
it, they, it doesn't matter. We recommend you put them in a sealed Ziploc bag so that the moisture is preserved and correct when it comes to the lab. But those two things are pretty well unaffected because they're spending a few days in the lab and, or in the mail. And then once they get here, they go in the oven as soon as they get here. So, um, you know, if you think your sample is going to spoil in that short amount of time, if it's a hay, you probably didn't do a good job getting it down to the right dry matter. If it's a silage, you probably didn't do a good job in siling it. So um, if you've got those two, that that's good. Um, the only time cold weather obviously is less of a concern. Um, if you do freeze your sample, then all that means is that we have to actually sit and wait for it to thaw before we can run it. And I also wouldn't recommend running an IR analysis on frozen samples because the cell walls burst and that may affect how that is um, viewed um, through that NIR system. Um, and then for fresh samples in the middle of summer that are really moist, they're not ensiled, I just recommend just put them in the lab or in the mail right away. It's very rare that we get a sample that's got mold issues. If it has mold issues, it's because it usually got lost in the mail for like a month. But otherwise, if it's just sent, spends a couple of days in the mail, it's usually just fine. So um, that's kind of what we recommend. If you do have concerns on those fresh pasture forages in the summer, you can always pay to have them overnighted. That would be the best solution for that. How about those cured samples if you're mailing them off this time of year, if you're opening a pile um, with concern? I mean, should people consider more of an insulated package so they don't freeze? Um, no, we're not. We don't usually get packages that freeze because of the weather. It's okay. because someone's frozen them to send them because other labs do say that you should do that. Um, we just don't. Makes sense. So any kind of specific packaging or you kind of mentioned the size of sample earlier. You don't need a garbage bag full. Um, do you like to see a certain type of package? And is there a time of the week to avoid shipping or does it matter too much? Um, I mean, always, if you're putting your sample in the mail on Friday, it's going to sit in there a couple of extra days. So, um, if you want it to get there quickest, it's going to obviously be better, you know, earlier in the week. Um, we ask for a quart size Ziploc bag. We do provide those. Uh, right now we do charge shipping to ship those sample supplies out to people. And we do provide a postage paid mailer. So Sam sending the sample back to us, you don't pay anything. So if you can stop by the lab and pick those up, or if you see us at a trade show or an event, then that's probably the easiest uh, way that people do it. A lot of people don't know you can tape those to a box. Um, and then that box, you know, keeps everything together and we still pay the postage on it. But even if you don't have our mailers, you can always just send them to us. Um, I always say, keep all your samples together in a box. And that way nothing gets split up because we get a lot of customers who are like, well, I got three samples back, but I still am waiting on results for one or two. And sometimes we haven't received them because they've just been sitting in the mail somewhere. So, um, yeah, as far as packaging, I'd say that's about it. Um, the only other thing is I'd say there's one test, which is prussic acid, which I typically avoid talking about. Um, 
But since you did ask about timing of mailing, we will only run that if it's been overnighted to us and has arrived Monday through Thursday. We do not run it on Fridays, um, and we do not run it if it's been sitting in the mail for too many days because it's a gas and it releases over time. So we want our result, if it says safe, to actually be safe and not to be potentially toxic. Definitely makes sense, for sure. So once we uh, are ready to get this in the mail to you, how do we choose an analysis package? How do we go about determining what, what information we need to give you uh, to get results? Mm -hmm. So for forages, for all forages, we offer NIR um, analysis and we use NIRS Forage and Feed Testing Consortium uh, calibrations. So the NIRS Forage and Feed Testing Consortium, for people that maybe don't know, is a group of commercial labs such as ourselves, researchers, instrument vendors, government entities, the alfalfa seed breeders, they're in there too. So basically every stakeholder in the field is um, submitting samples from all across the country. So they are the most robust calibrations out there to suit any kind of sample. So that's what I recommend to start with. And then they're going to include the main things that most producers are going to want to know, which is going to be, you know, your crude protein, your fibers, your calculated values such as TDN, RFB, RFQ. If you're an equine person, they're going to include the, the items you need to know for your equine diabetes. Um, so that's kind of the base package I recommend to work off of. And then if you're looking at doing a mineral supplement, I recommend uh, wet chemistry mineral analysis. If your forage is a nitrate accumulator like oats, hay, sorghum, sedan, anything like that, then you have to add nitrates. That's not included in those packages. And um, pH, like I mentioned before, with the silage. Those would be kind of the typical additions that I recommend. And are all of those packages um, information we can get online or do uh, people receive that in the mail so that they can send it in with their samples? Yes. So you can get it online. You can go in, you can print out our submission form. You can see all the information about the packages on our website. Uh, right now, I do think our website needs a little bit of updating because we've had a few things change um, in the past couple of months. We are no longer offering four minerals on the, with the NIR, but I think it says that we still are. Um, so that's kind of something to be aware of. Otherwise, they can always email me and I can send them the information. Uh, they can email our customer service or one of our sales reps too, and they can, they can send them that information. We can mail them that information as well. So... And I think that information is true if someone's listening in, um, but they're in a different part of the country or they use a different lab. I think that is true across the board for most, most labs. Yes. Yep. So when we're talking um, NIR, you know, that's not maybe as newfangled anymore as it used to be, but um, versus, you know, a lot of folks might've been more familiar with the traditional wet chemistry. When do we choose one over the other. Um, I know NIR is a lot more competitive when you look at it from a, a cost standpoint, um, but are there circumstances where we might still want wet chemistry? You mentioned the mineral packages, but um, even just for 
the general analysis. Yeah, and I think um, so. It's going to be if you're sampling something that's going to be pretty common. That's going to be some you know prairie hay or you know some something that's a common feed type. You should run NIR. It's going to be fine. If it's something that's odd, um, for example, we had a researcher send in some sun hemp samples recently. They wanted to do NIR because they wanted all the constituents, but their samples were not a good fit for our calibrations because we don't have, we have a few samples like that because I know I've submitted them to the consortium, but we don't have a lot of sun hemp in the database. So it's not a good fit. So if you have something like um, a common one that a lot of people do is they'll bail up uh, just a bunch a big weedy patch, um, that's not going to be a good fit for NIR either. So really anything that's an oddball, um, or I know Ben, you and I have emailed, I think, back and forth a little bit about heat damage. Mm -hmm. um, heat damage protein is included in the NIR package. However, that's for, <clears throat> you know, kind of stuff that's like on the fence, not sure. If you've got some real heat damage where it's turned the forage color and it's got that classic tobacco-y smell, we would recommend that be ran wet chemistry. Um, so some of it's a judgment call. Um, any cover crop mix, I'd say, that has brassicas in it. Uh, brassicas scan weird for whatever reason. And I, um, you could ask, reach out to the NIR consortium, uh, Bobby Joe anderson Houston. She would know more about that than I do. I just take her word for it. Um, you know, uh, but uh, they don't scan right. So we don't want to be putting those on. Um, so, yeah, kind of anything that's a bit of an oddball is going to be better to run wet chemistry. And if you ever are hesitant or unsure, you can always just call us and ask, um, and we'll tell you a direct answer. Because basically with that NIR, you're running a, a laser reading the light spectrometry that comes off of that and then comparing it to your database of wet chemistry, already mm -hmm. done wet chemistry. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. so yep. Yep if you don't have that wet chemistry to compare it to or it's not reading accurately, then it, okay, doesn't. Yep, exactly. And our lab looks at a global H, which is a statistic that'll tell us, hey, this sample's not a good fit. So sometimes even samples that should run well under our calibrations are flagged as not basically being outliers. So we always run wet chemistry, crude protein, ADF and NDF, which we think are kind of the main things most people are going to be after uh, at no charge when that happens. So, okay. So Rebecca, is there anything else that uh, we haven't covered that you would want to cover? Really what I just wanted to say is just that sampling doesn't do any good unless we understand our reports. So you can go through and get a great sample, but if you're not doing something with those numbers, then it's kind of pointless. So our lab puts out a lot of educational resources about that. I know both South Dakota and UNL have a lot of great resources for helping inter in, in, interpret forage reports. Um, but really, every interpretation is dependent on your situation, what animals you're feeding, how far you have to stretch it, what other feeds you have to complement your forages, how you can use it. And so I always just 
encourage people to reach out to their resources, whether that be their vet, their extension agent, if they're able to, you know, work with a nutritionist to really make sure they're getting the most out of their forages. Absolutely. And that's so true of so many things we talk about um, in extension or on this podcast that if you don't put the effort in, um, and even if you do at the, at the front end, but you don't actually look at the results at the back end, it's, it's just kind of a waste of time. So hopefully um, folks that are maybe newer to sampling some of their forages are willing to reach out and do a little reading on the results because sometimes I think it's overwhelming with uh, plants and soils, anything really, any lab results can come back and you're like, so what do I do with this? <laughs> no, I just say, especially being a producer where they have, you know, this is what we specialize in understanding these things and they have to know so many different things. So. Yep. So don't be afraid to reach out to the extension office closest to you or uh, the lab that you had your sample sent to for a little bit of extra information. Rebecca, you mentioned a couple of times, you know, if folks have questions or things um, to get a hold of you or, or Ward Labs there, what's the best way to do that? So we are currently under a limb system change. And normal, my normal availability is much more limited than it used to be. So I would say reach out to your extension agents. But if you do need some consultation from the lab, I will be most responsive over email and you can always call and leave a voicemail. And I am to the point where I can finally start getting back to people, but it's going to be like within 24 to 48 hours business day wise. Um, Hopefully once our system gets a little smoother, my time will free up and I will be mostly being consulting and you guys can call me and I will answer and be Johnny on the spot like I used to be. So um, our phone number is 308-234-2418. And then my email is rkern at wardlab.com. All right. So if you have an emergency, maybe don't contact you right now. <laughs> but if you've got a general question or something, as long as you're willing to wait a little bit, um, especially if it's dealing with... You know, wet chem NIR or some of those things that we talked about, feel free to reach out. Yes, definitely. Don't want to discourage anyone from reaching out and hopefully in the coming months, it'll be back to normal. But uh, if, if you are one of our usual customers and you've been hanging on with us, uh, we do appreciate that right now. The lab work has not changed. I will say that our lab work is still very accurate and reliable. So. Well, Rebecca, we uh, really appreciate you taking some time to talk with us today. And, um, you know, we hope that everyone listening took a little bit away uh, why it's important, how we can get a really good sample. Um, You know, maybe sometime down the road, we can dive into um, what those analysis actually look like. Um, We'll maybe get you back on and and talk about the actual analysis side of it. But um, I think just at this point of the year, making sure that we get those good samples how we send those in and and why it's important to get those good samples was a a good discussion to have. So thanks for coming on again, Rebecca, and um, all of our listeners, thank you for joining us today on the Forage Connection.